I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hearing Luke's gospel together this summer and fall, I've gained a new appreciation for Luke as an author. He's a craftsman, really, the way he uses motifs and themes, most profoundly that of social outreach and inclusion. In Luke, what we often call the Sermon on the Mount is in fact a sermon on a level field. Stories of healing always double as stories of social restoration, like the 10 lepers for whom physical healing means they are again fully welcome in their communities. This morning, we can read that Jesus comes to see Zacchaeus just as quickly and decisively as Zacchaeus hurries to see him. That's beautiful. Of all the gospelers, Luke also has the greatest sensitivity to the issue of money. In fact, place this morning's story in the context of the others we've heard this season in the so-called ordinary time after Pentecost. And this might be a bit of a strain. I might ask you to think back to July and August. Luke tells us the story of a rich young man, the one who wanted to inherit eternal life and went away grieving for he had many possessions. Then there was the rich man who wants to pull down his barns and build them bigger so he can continue to amass wealth. The rich man and his dishonest manager, the rich man in the grand house where Lazarus sleeps at the gates. In Luke's gospel, when we encounter someone who is rich, we meet someone who is in trouble, whether or not they know it yet. It's just a handful of chapters before this one when Jesus tells the assembled crowds, beware, be on your guard against greed of every kind, because even when someone has more than enough, his possessions do not give him life. We heard that in church back in the end of July. Even last week, the tax collector prays in the back of the temple saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Luke is pricking our ears. Does someone in the story have money? Watch out. So that's how he sets us up for this neat little story of salvation. Be on guard against greed, even wealth itself. And then this chief tax collector, this rich man, sees Jesus. He meets Jesus. And he declares that from that encounter, he is going to change his life. If that was all that Luke was up to in this passage, if that was all that Jesus was up to in this encounter, that would be enough. Repentance, redemption, relationship. In a nutshell, God's dream for us. But I firmly believe every time we think we have a handle on just what God wants to tell us, that's when we need to be ready for the curveball. It's like when they catch the bad guy five minutes into law and order, there's going to be more. That curveball this week was waiting for me in my interlinear Bible, the one that lets you see the most literal translation for every word. Going back to the Greek has been another theme for me this season, so bear with me. I promise this will not be a complex grammar lesson, but we do have to talk very briefly about tenses. Look what Zacchaeus says to Jesus. Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. I will give. I will pay. He's talking about the future. He's saying he'll change. Except what if he isn't? He's saying, I do give. I do pay, present tense. 
It's the exact same word Jesus uses in John's gospel when he says, I give you a new commandment. I give you my peace. The word is didymi, if you're wondering, didymi. It turns out that there is a whole scholarly debate about this exchange, a verb tense they dub future present, meaning every other time this word appears in scripture, it's describing the present, except when Zacchaeus uses it and it's about the future. I am nowhere near talented enough, a grammarian, to weigh in on this debate, but I can appreciate that it opens up a new little world for us in this passage. Zacchaeus is already a changed man when he meets Jesus. First, even with a shift, so much remains the same. Zacchaeus wanting to see Jesus and Jesus wanting to see him. But there is new depth because see, Jesus never calls Zacchaeus a sinner, but everyone else does. They knew and we know that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. So it stands to reason that he's a bad guy. And we know Jesus blesses this man and his house. So it stands to reason that he has repented, repented in a way that is clear and legible to us. But with a hitch thrown in the works that the man we assume is bad is trying to do good, Zacchaeus's repentance looks a lot more like ours. Repentance that is done wholeheartedly in half measures or half-heartedly in whole ones, Repentance that comes in fits and starts and stutter steps. Repentance that is deeply personal. The fruit of a relationship between us and God alone. Our relationship with God is not always clear and scrutable to others. Maybe Zacchaeus's isn't either. As Paul might say, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us. That's personal to us and seldom seldom linear. Who knows how Zacchaeus is really doing as he strives to be a child of God, a son of Abraham. If his neighbors don't know his efforts at charity and financial restitution, has he gone far enough? We don't know, but Jesus does. To risk repeating myself even with one or two words different, so much of the message remains the same, if not the whole message. For the rich are not in any less inherent danger in the eyes of Luke or of Jesus, just because Zacchaeus is possibly more complex than we thought. Whether this is a new amendment of life or an older one, John the Baptist instructs the tax collectors on how to live in this gospel. Whether this is a new change Zacchaeus is making or an old one, it is still just the kind of monetary redistribution that God wants to see but it helps me to trouble the waters with this story. Yes, it makes it a little less clear, but oh, is it more familiar. Because when we pray together every week, a few moments from now when we make our confession, there can be some really big things that you are bringing to Jesus. But how much more often is it death by a thousand paper cuts, all our little squeakier wheels that need grease, salvation, is a journey, and it's on that road where our life with Christ is lived. That's where the rubber hits the road and the stuff really happens. With less clarity, but greater honesty, we're all on steadier footing, even if we're balancing on a tree branch, because above all, what we hear in this story is that Jesus 
truly sees us. In one glance, he can take in who we are, who we were, who we might yet be, who we long to be. No matter how similar or different all those states might be, and we have to let him. We have to let Jesus see us. So often we are more like the crowd than we are like Zacchaeus, pronouncing judgment, rather than looking at where God is in this, especially if the target of that judgment is us. Why is it often so much easier to assume that God is disappointed in us, rather than longing for us, longing to be with us and for us? When that's how we feel, guilty, we're less likely to make the climb, to let ourselves end up in a position where we can be known even as we are truly known. Because that's what Luke's Jesus is continually getting after by asking us to think critically about wealth, by focusing on social inclusion and bringing those who are on the outside in. Redemption, repentance, and ultimately, relationship. Relationship is what makes it all hang together. That's what makes it possible for who we are to bear some resemblance to who we were made to be. A relationship with Jesus striving to know God means we do not have to be afraid to know ourselves. Even the attempt, just trying, just trying to be a disciple, a friend of God, it cracks the world wide open. And so the water of life flows from Eden to the New Jerusalem, and the light of Christ gives us eyes to see, to see God, to see our neighbors, and to see ourselves. It's okay to risk it, to climb the tree, and quite literally, go out on a limb. Jesus will never let you fall. Amen. Amen.